Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. First Peter chapter 5. We are getting close to the end of this book, of this letter. Resting and resisting. Resting and resisting. You never think of these two things in tandem, but in today's message, that is what we're going to see. Resisting and resting, or resting and resisting. Last week I introduced to you Yusuf, Constance, and Vivian. All three who faced difficulties. Yusuf was ridiculed, if you might remember, in school for being different. He looked different. He talked different. Came from a different country. His lunch and food was different. Constance was rejected from all social aspects in her school because she looked different. She didn't look like the other girls. She was rejected from the sheer team and from all the other types of clubs. While Vivian face repercussions at work for having different values. She would not cheat at work. She would not seek to undermine the customers or cheat at the taxes and in the accounting books. And as you might recall from last week, home was the only place that they felt safe, comfort, and valued. Fortunately, for the most part, their families were supporting and encouraging Yes, they had struggles like every family, but typically they resolved them amicably and encouraging and and, and lifting one another up. Yet their struggle was very real and difficult. Each new morning brought hope that that it might be different, but also anxiety that nothing would change. They approached leaving the house with despair and dread. What they did not realize is that that fear, that worry and resentment was beginning to take its toll in their soul. They found themselves responding in anger, lashing out at friends and foe alike, which made their situation even harder. Last week, Peter wrote to the elect exiles in Asia Minor to not be surprised when ridiculed, rejected, or facing repercussions for living a godly lifestyle. Instead, God had called them to respond to their suffering with joy and gladness. They were to endure the verbal attacks with gladness and joy, realizing that they were partners with Christ and that they will be vindicated and exalted with Him when He comes in glory. Peter knows that the suffering faced by believers from a world that is hostile to their faith will put a strain on the whole church community. The church, as we saw, is a sanctuary, a refuge, a haven to those who are continually maligned for their faith. And he uniquely understands the importance of the church in the lives of believers and wants to protect it from sliding into complaining, pride, and even apostasy. To protect the church, God has ordained elders who have the responsibility to shepherd God's people by feeding, guiding, and protecting them. 
Elders are not to lead by manipulation and intimidation, but to glorify God through their example in forsaking their old lifestyles, enduring ridicule, rejection, and repercussions with joy and gladness, giving reason to the hope that we will be vindicated and exalted by God for our obedience in faith. This obedience will serve as a witness and testimony to the sovereignty and holiness of God, leading to the salvation of many. Amen. Peter also instructs the rest of the congregation to humble themselves by allowing themselves to be led and discipled. Many times churches struggle because many in the church will not submit to leadership. We all have the desire to be the boss. This type of struggle can devastate a church, harming its witness and paralyzing its mission. Both the elders and the church were called to humility. As Dr. Schreiner wisely notes from last week, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And I will add, not just in the church, but all relationships, marriage, parents, employees, so on. And so forth. Well, in last week's passage, Peter had ended by saying, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And he gave us the reason is because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In today's passage, he will share a few ways in which we are to humble ourselves. So, with that, 1 Peter chapter 5, let's read verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, Peter writes, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. (coughs) Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask for your indulgence on us this morning, your love, and Father, your compassion. As you open up your word and we read it, send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and hearts, to convict us of sin, to convict us of righteousness, and convict us of holy living. Let him teach us what the word has to say. And may we respond to his work. We pray that Christ would come now. And Father, as he gives us his peace, knowing that we're secure in him, may there be some here today that need to call on him, maybe for the very first time that they too may come to know you as Savior. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. The first command Peter refers to in verse 5 is to rest. We are to rest in God. Peter is calling the elect exiles to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, if not careful, we can take this passage almost as a bumper sticker that just advocates for the virtue of humility in rejecting a prideful heart. Now, that is good and biblical. However, you and I must remember and keep, to keep Peter's instructions in context with the issue that these believers are facing. What is it that they are to humble themselves? Why are they to humble themselves? 
as they are facing the verbal assaults of ridicule and rejection in their social structures, in family and in the culture, and the economic repercussions for turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their decision to follow Christ has turned others against them, both families, friends, and co-workers. Again, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles there. In 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 3. For the time, Peter writes, is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, the world is surprised when you do not what? Join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, they ridicule you, they reject you. There's repercussions. It should not surprise Christians that when you abandon your former way of ignorance, of seeking to please yourselves and commit to living lives of godliness and holiness, that family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors will respond with spite and disbelief. Paul's letter to Romans tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he says, it cannot. The letter of Ephesians describes all of us that once we were dead in the trespasses and sins. And once we once walked, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which we all are at birth among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like Paul, we can say that we were guilty. Paul writes to remind us that such were some of you, but that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified or made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How and why? Because God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in those trespasses of sin, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. For what we're seeing here is Peter is speaking to these, uh, these elect exiles and encouraging them. He says, once that mercy has reached your heart, once you've been regenerated, there's going to be a difference in your life. In Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 3. Paul warns us as new creatures in Christ, we are to forsake the old way of living and pursue holiness. For he writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, which in his essence is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things that we just said, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true in verse 10. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And he ends with verse 11, which many of us still need to embrace and understand. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, as you can imagine, this can dramatically change family dynamics. It can put friends in in opposition in how they entertain themselves. And it can create opposition and suspicion among those who call evil good and good evil and then seek to codify that through cultural and politics. These first century Christians were at odds with the imperial cult that worshipped Caesar as well as those that worshipped the many various pagan gods. Luke, the doctor, historian, and companion of Paul, and writer of the Gospel of Luke in the letter and the, and, the, and the Acts of the Apostles, he records how some would respond to Paul's call to repentance, while the rest of the population would rise up in riot against him. Paul would tell the Church of Corinth that because of his witness, because of his forsaking the world and exposing the darkness in which they lived, he says he suffered far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and he was often near death. He says, five times I received the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes save one, meaning 39. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Danger from my own people, danger from the den Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea and among false brothers, in toil and hardship, and through it all many times with sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food in the cold and exposure. Here was a man who suffered for the sake of Christ. And again, would you indulge me, turn to Acts chapter 19. For I would like you to see a picture of an example of the opposition that Paul faced in sharing the gospel. This is very similar, though not exactly like what many of us go through today for our witness. But yet look at Acts chapter 19. In verse 23, Luke writes, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's his, that, that was the word for the, for the Christian church. He says in verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought, who was a Roman god or a Greek god, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, Men, you know from the, this business we have our wealth. We make a lot of money by peddling these idols. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus and in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. He is now getting into our business. He is costing us money. In verse 27, he says, and there is danger not only in this trade of others, or of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificent, for she whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Outrage. 
Now, I think you could take this passage of Scripture and you could probably fill in the blanks with Artemis and with other things, other types of venues. You know, I shouldn't say this. Okay, I'm going to say this. You could take this out and you can insert Games of Thrones. Why a Christian watch Games of Thrones, I do not know. Well, if you get past the nudity and the rape and the violence, if you get past all that, it's pretty good. And I'm sure it is. But yet in the same way, we're filled with that type of stuff. We're no different than the people who are peddling idols to others. Now I just made some enemies. You're outraged. Well, good. Well, that'll go with the message. Like Paul, our testimony, and that's not like Games of Thrones. There are many things that we watch that are suspect. Like Paul, our testimony, our pursuit of holiness, our stance on biblical issues will stand in stark contrast to the world. When we stand up against the culture and politics and expose the works of evil, it will not be appreciated. It will not be accepted. They will respond with ridicule, rejecting our faith, hating our stance, and an outrage with our beliefs. Today, outrage is the spirit of the age. Hans Fein, writing in The Federalist this past week, remarks that society is now a bunch of outrage addicts so desperate for our daily anger fix that we've turned ourselves imbecilic trying to get it. He likens this outrage to an addiction that helps us to feel good about ourselves or our cause. There are all sorts of outrage groups I'm adding today, ready to pour out our fury on those that they consider to be women haters, men haters, minority haters, police haters, transgender haters, climate change deniers, Christian fundamentalist terrorists, fill in the blank. And you and I only have to open the newspapers and turn on the news to see what's going on in Charlottesville, which, by the way, from my editorial, says that we oppose and deny any of that type of stuff, any type of identity politics or anything in which value is tied into your identity and how you were born or what skin color you are. That is not of Christ. And if any of those use the name of Jesus Christ, let them be anathema because it is not true and not right. But we're all looking for something to be outraged about. And Christians are not immune to the outrage as well. We are looking, pleading for ways to be offended. Just working our way through Twitter to find someone to get mad at. Looking at Facebook saying, who's going to tick me off today? In many cases, people are bending over backwards to be offended. Even provoking the outrage. The writer summarizes the reason of the addiction to outrage is our desire to be angry. As we have seen before, anger is a debt that says, you owe me. And that's what we see happening in Charlottesville. Everyone's saying, you owe me. This is mine. Give it back. You have offended me. And we've done this in so many ways. This was what Demetrius is doing. He says, Paul owes us. He's taking from us. What's the response? Let's start a riot. Let's kill them. Let's beat everyone that's associated with them. The young man who was fired from Google this past week for writing an internal memo on the company website that it went against their worldview, 
writes that public shaming serves not only to display the virtue of those doing the shaming, but it also warns others that the same punishment awaits them if they don't conform. Now stay with me because you're going to see how this, uh, uh, how this works towards what's going on in 1 Peter. Though this is not a Christian issue per, in, 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 in essence, he found out what happens when someone proposes a different set of values than the world. He goes on to write, everything changed when I wrote this document, when it went viral within the company and the wider tech world. He says, those most zealously committed to the diversity creed that all differences in outcome are due to differential treatment and all people are inherently the same could not let this public offense go unpunished. They sent angry emails to Google's human resources department and everyone up my management chain demanding censorship, retaliation, and an interesting word, atonement. Someone must pay. Upper management, he writes, tried to placate this surge of outrage by shaming me, misrepresenting my document, but they really could do they really couldn't really do otherwise. The mob would have set upon anyone who openly agreed with me or even tolerated my views. Now we see the same thing happening even when we have the world who would say we agree with some of the Christian tenets of the faith or the way in which they live out their faith. Same thing. When the whole episode finally became a giant media controversy, thanks to external leaks, Google had to save, uh, solve the problem caused by my supposedly sexist anti-diversity manifesto, and the whole company came under heated and sometimes threatening scrutiny. Now here's, tie back with me. These first century Christians as well as believers today, face the same type of ridicule, rejection, and repercussion, but only because of our faith, for our pursuit of holiness, and our abandonment of seeking satisfaction outside of God's good promises. The young man at Google paid a difficult cry, uh, price. He was maligned by the media, rejected by his fellow employees, and then fired by, by the CEO for sharing his worldview. This is a worldview, by the way, many social and cultural scientists stated actually were correct. This overreaction to his manifesto, uh, this outrage seemed like overkill, especially in a nation that's built upon the precept of free speech and acceptance of multiculturalism. David Brooks, writing in the New York Times, trying to make sense of the outrage, remarks, I'd say that radical uncertainty about morality, meaning, and life in general is producing intense anxiety. So people are filling out with outrage. Some people embrace moral absolutism. I'm not going to be able to say it. Absolute in a desperate effort to find solid ground. They're looking for something to be uh, firm. They feel a rare and comforted sense of moral certainty when they are purging an evil person who has violated one of their sacred taboos. Now, does this not sound like that one billionaire? who is spending millions of dollars to politically and economically and culturally punish the wicked ones who are against um, gay marriage, who still stand for traditional marriage that we shared. 
The world responds with outrage when confronted with their opposition to their pet issues and worldviews. They seek to ridicule, to set apart, and destroy any competing thought. Their anxiety causes them to be angry and hateful. They must prove at any cost that they are right and that everyone else is wrong. Now this brings us back to Peter's purpose in writing this letter. He writes to encourage these elect exiles who are maligned for their free faith to respond differently to persecution that they are facing. Instead of hate and outrage, they are to love. Instead of revenge, seeking to avenge themselves, they are to pray for their enemies. Instead of anger driven by pride, they are to be humble. Peter writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see, God's children are to respond to the hateful actions and attitudes of the world by accepting that suffering as ordained by God. To fight against the world using the world's ammunition and war plan would be fight against the very will of God. Pastor John MacArthur writes that the readers of Peter's letter were not to fight the sovereign hand of God even when it brought them through testing. One of the evidences of a lack of submission and humility is impatience with God in his work of humbling the believer. So instead of responding with harsh words and outrage and overreactions to the ridicule and rejection of the world, James tells us to let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Listen, if you would, please. To love our neighbor as ourselves means to humble ourselves by surrendering our rights to fight back so that we may be able to love them, trusting that God will avenge his children and honor in the last days. Peter uses the phrase, the mighty hand of God, painting the word picture of God, delivering the Israelites from the harsh hand of the, of the Egyptians. He's calling us to, to rest. Humbleness is a sign of resting in God's sovereignty. You see, God promises to rescue his children at the proper time, indicating the return of Christ. Jesus taught us in Matthew 23 that whoever exalts himself will be humble, humble and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You and I must rest in the sovereignty of God, recognizing that this ridicule, the maligning, and the, and the, and the repercussions, the re rejections of the world is part of God's plan. We must not despair under the constant pressure to conform to the world, nor to the harshness of their attack, but rest, that we are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Instead, the Bible tells us through Peter that we are cast all your anxieties on him. This command in verse 7 echoes David's instructions in Psalms 55 where he sings, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Rest. Now the word casting can paint a picture of one who is fishing. Think of that, casting the line. 
It's one who's throwing out a thin, light fishing line out to catch fish. Not much work is needed to be done. It can be enjoyable and even therapeutic, some as I have been told. But our worries and anxieties are much heavier and difficult than a fishing line. No, the picture of casting here paints a picture of one who takes a heavy bag or like a saddle and throws it over a donkey or a beast of burden. It is a lightening of one's load. Pastor John MacArthur writes that Christians are to cast all of their discontent, their discouragement, their despair, and their suffering on the Lord. Trusting Him for knowing that He knows what He's doing with our lives. We're to rest, lifting that heavy burden and casting it on a beast of burden. Too many people today are exhausted trying to carry their anxieties, their worries, and their problems themselves. Like Vivian and Constant and Yusef, they're trying to solve their own problems. Worry is a form of pride. Because in worry, we put ourselves as the center of our universe. We're seeking to solve our problems ourselves. We're seeking to have pity parties and making ourselves larger than anything else. Yet what Peter is telling us is that we show humility in casting our cares upon God. The antidote to worry is resting and trusting in God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount taught us, as we saw earlier in Landon's reading, is do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. One theologian remarks that affliction either drives one into the arms of God or it severs one from God. We must not allow Satan to cast doubt on God's word, on his goodness and his love. God is not indifferent. Let me share with you. God is not indifferent or cruel to the suffering of his children. You say it once again. God is not indifferent to the suffering or cruel to the suffering of his children. The good news, and listen to this, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is your beast of burden. You are carrying what Jesus was designed to carry. Jesus lovingly begs you, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart. I am humble, and, I will, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is our beast of burden. You must humble yourself. Allow for him to carry that which you cannot do for yourself. Many of you today need to humble yourselves. Surrender your outrage and overreaction to the hostility of the world by resting in the mighty hand of God. Now let me make one editorial note. What Peter and what Jesus is talking about here is not anxiety attacks, panic panic attacks. He's talking about those who allow things to get to them. It's not talking about someone who all of a sudden has this uh, emotional chemical reaction to something that's going on, but for those of us who outrage and want to seek vengeance for ourselves, who, who worry. 
Many times those things come hand in hand, but I want to make sure that when you suffer from things of that, that many things are a medical condition that you're not assuming one and the same. So he calls us to rest. The second command Peter gives to the elect exiles then is to resist. Now this seems almost uh, contrary. I'm supposed to rest and resist? How can, I, how can I do both? But yet he's calling us in the same passage to do both. The second command he gives is to resist. In verse 8, he identifies that our enemy is not our family. It's not our friends or our co-workers or neighbors or even those in social and political spheres that are hostile to our faith. The real enemy is spiritual. It's not flesh and blood. Paul writes, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Your enemy is not your spouse. It is not your children. It is not your boss. It is not Donald Trump. It is not President Obama. It is not some different type of group. Your enemy is spiritual in nature. We must recognize that. The real enemy is spiritual evil, not people. It shouldn't surprise us when people respond to our faith with hostility. Jesus himself informed his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I think it's so interesting. I think just this past week I read someone wrote on a Twitter or something like that, we love your Jesus, we don't love you. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You don't love our Jesus. You don't love the things he said. You don't love the commands he's given. But they really hate Jesus. They hate God. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You and I must not be surprised by their hostility and ignorance. But remember that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel to the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Knowing this, Peter warns us that vigilance is needed. We are not to live careless, uh, carefree types of lives. And I'm afraid many times, many of us are going through our lives not with vigilance. We are just going throughout the world, entertaining ourselves as the world, entertaining ourselves in such a, such a way, keeping ourselves busy that we're not aware of what's going on. For he tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Some of us go from night to day and day to night never contemplating this very truth. And we wonder why our lives are so messed up. Why are we exhausted and tired? Why do we seem to fail all the time? Why does there not seem to be any joy in life? Though he is a defeated foe, Satan's roar is an intimidation tactic tactic designed to produce fear. One pastor notes that Satan and his forces are always active, looking for opportunities to overwhelm the believer with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. Satan sows discord. He accuses God to men, men to God, and men to men. He will do what he can to drag the Christian out of fellowship with Christ and out of Christian service. And he even uses the hostility that we face to do so. All he needs to do is to keep Christians quiet, to keep us hiding, to, to come away from the world. 
to, to say, let's remove ourselves. Now, it's true that Satan will use our family and our friends and those world as weapons against us, but we cannot respond to them as enemies that deserve our judgment or condemnation. For God has called us to love them, to be the fragrance of the gospel, the aroma of Christ in order that they might repent and turn towards God. When you and I respond with pride to the hostility of the world, we lose our testimony and the opportunity to witness. So when we face the hostility for living godly lives, for exposing the darkness of the world, whatever it may be, take it, whatever you're, you're the thing that we're fighting at this point, we must realize that we're resisting Satan, not resisting the individual. We're to engage those people. We're to love them, praying for an opportunity to share with them the gospel. Instead, God is calling us to resist evil with firm faithfulness. Peter calls them and us today in verse 9 to resist Satan, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Though we are called to rest in God's humility, we are to be active, not passive. You see, you and I resist Satan in two ways here in this passage. One, by not doubting God's sovereignty or his providence in our suffering. This hostility is not taking him by surprise. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't respond in the same way that the world does with outrage, with attacks and ridicule and rejection. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What you and I do is we resist Satan by not doubting God's sovereignty or providence in our suffering. We're not fighting against those personally that are against Christ but against the thoughts, the worldviews that are behind their ideology. We need to realize that. We have to work hard and pray much that we may win an opportunity to share with them the gospel, the true antidote to racism, the real antidote to sexism, the real antidote to the hate and the outrage of the world. And even to those that profess Christ, but yet live as the world. The second way that we resist Satan is by remembering that you and I are not alone in our suffering. Again, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, famous portion of scripture. The writer of Hebrew encourages believers to persevere by recalling those who lived before us. He says, speaking of these men, David, Gideon, so on and so forth. He says, through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of swords, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight. The women received back their dead by resurrection. And we're reading this and we're saying, yes, I want to be part of that army. I want victory. I want, I, want, uh, I want all these types of things to happen. What great songs of victory you have. 
But yet then he also goes and speaks of what the world may call failures. He says not only were women uh, received their debt or women received back their dead, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better, better life. Not only that, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, but yet they wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth through victory and through defeat. God says, look to these people. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect or made mature. Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Speaking of these men and women, let us lay aside every weight before us, or sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I must remember that we are not alone. When he says that this suffering, this all kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brethren throughout the world, we are not alone. The rest of the world actually suffers from the hostility more than you and I. There are some where they could not meet openly as you and I have. They would not have a copy of God's word in their hands, especially in their own language. There are some today that are in prison because of their faith. And their stance for Christ. There are some that are being tortured. There are some that have not, that have been lost, and their friends and family do not know where they are because they've been taken by secrecy of night, and their life snuffed out. You and I are not alone. We don't even have the worst of it, but we're to resist, firm in our faith, knowing that they are doing so today. Yet more so can we. Peter then writes a word of encouragement in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, and will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's encouragement consists of two truths. And we're close here. Consists of two truths. The first one, you must understand this. The suffering, the hostility that we're undergoing is temporary. Paul writes that you and I must have perspective of what our life is about. He says, so that we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You and I do not have to respond to the hostility of the world without rage or anxiety, but rest, understanding that what we are facing is temporary, it's transient. One day it will be gone and we will be with him in glory vindicated and exalted resisting satan as difficult as that is each morning i give up i get up and i pray three things i pray one father lead me not in temptation and deliver me from evil 
The second thing I pray is, Jesus, will you pray for me today as you prayed for Peter, that Satan will not be able to sift me like wheat. But if he does, Father, or Jesus, would you pray that God will restore me? And then my third prayer is, Holy Spirit, would you pray, would you just guide me, enlighten me, strengthen me, give me a greater measure of faith? Would I be able to produce the fruits of the Spirit? And I pray those three things, a triterian, trinity, triterian prayer, all through the day. And guess what happens when I fall and when I fail and when I get angry and frustrated? I start over again. Father, forgive me, but give me the strength. Lead me not in temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Jesus, would you pray for me? Spirit, would you guide and direct me? Knowing that one day it will be done. I will no longer have to fight this battle of sin. This myself is the greatest enemy I fight. I have to resist the passions that Satan stirs up within me. The second point that we want to see from that passage is God, the good shepherd, watches over his flock. He promises to feed, to guide, and protect his children. Again, till I go to that promise, it's those he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he's going to what? Glorify. And all things that happen in my life are God's purposes for me. And they work to my good, whether I see it or not. Peter finishes this passage in verse 11 with worship, with a doxology. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Rest and resist leads to worship. And worship is how we rest and resist. The world that is hostile to our faith will give away to God's rule. Amen. One day God will bring everything to account and he will judge the living and the dead, the small and the great. No one will escape his righteous rule. We may be living in a Romans chapter 1 world today that seeks to malign the children of God now, but God has promised that he will vindicate and exalt all of those that are following him. Let me close with the words of John the Apostle of 1 John chapter 5. The beloved writes, For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? God has called you to rest and resist. Rest and resist. Would you do that this morning? Do not despair, brother and sister in Christ. Refuse to respond to the world as the world does with outrage and overreaction. But humble yourself by resting in Christ and resisting the works of Satan. May God give us sufficient grace to do such difficult tasks. And may our families and friends take notice and be led to worship the Father themselves, the creator of the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of Scripture. Rest and resist. And may God be with his children as we humble ourselves and follow him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's just take a moment as the worship team comes up, as we pause to consider God's word. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and resist the devil.
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Would you do so this morning? Would you recommit to doing that? Would you join me with praying, Lord, help me to rest in you and give me the faith to resist the one who seeks our demise? Would you then respond to the Holy Spirit's work this morning? I would call you to join in resting and resisting. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your word. And I pray that you would strengthen us this morning for such a thing. Father, I pray that we would not respond to the hostility of the world, to the ridicule, to the rejection and the repercussions for living a godly life with outrage, with a vengeance, with seeking to harm others, to shame others. But Father, let us receive what comes from your good hand, good and evil. For the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But blessed be the name of God. Let us rest, rest and resist in your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.